0: If anything, you know, Amazon is trying to build an empire and uh, Shopify is trying to arm the rebels. So uh, maybe some of our customers might compete with Amazon at some point, but that would be like super cool. And um, they're not there yet. So maybe one day in this way. Happy Monday and welcome to Not Boring. This week we're talking about one of my favorite companies. This whole essay is not a knock on the company. It's just about the unintended consequences of what happens when you give everybody the same tools. Uh, So let's get to it. The hard thing about easy things. The downside of being a Shopify armed rebel. Amazon is building an empire and Shopify is trying to arm the rebels. So maybe some of our customers might compete with Amazon at some point, but that would be like super cool. And um, we're not there yet, but maybe someday in that way. Toby Lutka, Shopify founder and CEO. Shopify's stock keeps doubling and doubling, so everyone wants to know its secret. The most fun explanation is Shopify CEO Toby Lucka's claim that the company is trying to arm the rebels. But it's not true, really. By giving everyone access to the same tools, Shopify isn't arming the rebels as much as it's profiting off the chaos created by arming everyone. Here's the hard thing about easy things. If everyone can do something, there's no advantage to doing it, but you still have to do it anyway just to keep up. By making direct-to-consumer easier, software like Shopify increases entropy and lowers the probability that any specific company will generate sustained profits. Toby borrowed the phrase arming the rebels from a geopolitical strategy in which a big, powerful country, safely separated by miles and oceans, supports rebel forces fighting for change in a smaller, poorer, less powerful country by giving them money, arms, and implied support. Think the U.S. backing the Contras against the Sandinista government in Nicaragua or the Soviet and Cuban support for anti-apartheid forces in South Africa. If you want to put on your tinfoil hat, Think the U.S. funding Osama bin Laden and the Afghan-Arab uh, Afghan fighters in the Soviet-Afghan War. Shopify is an amazing company, full of great people. But Shopify isn't really arming the rebels. Because when every rebel is armed, none really is. It's like when you played GoldenEye 007 as a kid. Getting the golden gun the hard way was dope. Everyone getting the golden gun with a cheat code made the game suck. When everyone has the same plug-and-play tools, the profit profit flows away from the rebels and towards the arm dealers, forcing rebels to devise new guerrilla tactics to take back profits. Arming the rebels involves picking one side and backing it. Armed rebels often win. Apartheid ended, the Sandinistas lost, the Soviets withdrew from Afghanistan, and then the Soviet Union fell. Shopify's merchants, on the other hand, are still in the midst of a bloody battle for customers and profits. So what is Shopify doing? Shopify and Stripe, BigCommerce, Google, Facebook, FedEx, UPS, Flexport, Anvil, Boxy, Customer, Returnly, Alibaba, and hundreds of more e-commerce infrastructure companies, they're arming everyone. Using off-the-shelf software and services, anyone with an internet connection and a credit card can set up an online store and sell things to people. In many ways, that's a great thing, particularly in a period of high unemployment, starting an e-commerce business is one potential way to keep paying the bills. Extremely low upfront costs and easy to use tools means lower barriers to entry. This has major drawbacks for e-commerce companies that want to achieve scale and achieve profitability though. First, low barriers to entry mean more competition and everyone running around with arms means chaos. It means that it's a great time to be an arms dealer and a tough time to be a rebel. Second, now that nearly every piece of the value chain has become modularized, the battle is concentrated in one place, marketing via paid acquisition and brand, the only moat for the vast majority of brands. Looking at the DTC, landscape as a battlefield on which thousands of well-armed rebel groups compete, lets us explore a few things. Why everyone gets rich in e-commerce except, except the DTC companies themselves, Porter's five forces and value chains, doing some foundational strategy work here, who competition is good for what DTC brands can do to succeed in an increasingly chaotic space and the innovation to software to curation cycle that impacts most industries. And as a note, I know, I know, DTC is just a channel, it's not a business, blah, 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 blah. I'm using it loosely here to refer to all CPG-esque e-commerce retail businesses. So let's kick things off with a paradox. Why does everyone get rich in e-commerce except the DTC companies? Let me let you in on a little secret that the e-commerce industry is very excited about. COVID pulled 10 years of e-commerce penetration growth into three months. When the pandemic began, we bought 16% of our things online. Now, we buy nearly 34% of our things online. That's the kind of hockey stick growth investors like to see. And the e-commerce infrastructure companies' valuations are skyrocketing according- accordingly. In just the past two weeks, Shopify crushed earnings, 97% year-over-year revenue growth, led by 148% growth in merchant services revenue, which is the payment processing and transaction fees that go up when the overall spend on Shopify goes up. Shopify crossed $31 billion in gross merchandise value. BigCommerce, a Shopify competitor, went public and popped 292% in its first day of trading. Square announced Q2 revenue of $1.92 billion, up 64% year-over-year, on a 50-plus percent year-over-year gross payment value increase. E-commerce stocks have popped over the past six months, too. Etsy is up 169.7%. Shopify, 118%. Square, 83%. PayPal, up 65%. Amazon, which started at a $1 trillion market cap, is up 53.4% to a $1.5 trillion market cap. eBay is up 44.3%. Even UPS, which delivers so many DTC products, is trading at all-time highs. Wow, hot space. The whole world is moving online. There must be a ton of hugely successful e-commerce brands, too, right? Um, DTC, as we know, was born when Andy Dunn founded Bonobos in 2007. Then came Warby Parker in 2010, Harry's in 2012, and Casper in 2014. As Len Schlesinger writes in HBR, the direct-to-consumer startups rise was enabled by an environment of abundant venture capital, low competition, and above all, the advertising arbitrage that could be exploited on underpriced social media platforms. These early DTC companies were genuinely innovative. They used new technology to invent a new business model. By cutting out the middleman and selling directly to end consumers on their own websites, DTC startups could lower costs, build relationships, and increase lifetime value through repeat purchases. Investors were enamored. Bonobos raised $127 million in venture capital. Warby Parker raised nearly $300 million. Harry's raised $475 million, some of which went to fund the acquisition of a razor factory. And Casper raised $355 million. But while funding came easy, strong exits have been harder to come by. Two of the big VC-backed DCC companies have gone public in the past three years casper's last private valuation in march 2019 was 1.1 billion dollars it ipo'd at a 470 million dollar market cap in february 2020 and it's currently trading near a 350 million dollar market cap less than it's raised blue apron which raised 200 million dollars in the private markets reached a peak valuation of 2 billion dollars in june 2015. its market cap is currently around 120 million dollars a 94 percent decline Casper and Blue Apron were too easy to copy. According to CNBC, there were over 175 mattress-in-a-box companies as of last summer. When Amazon filed a patent for prepared food kits, Blue Apron's stock price plummeted 11% in one day. Increased competition led to more expensive customer acquisition. Well-funded and thirsty for growth, Casper and Blue Apron turned to paid spend and discounts to acquire customers. I know a lot of people who ate for free for months by signing up for each meal kit company's free trial and then canceling and moving on to the next. Scott Galloway pointed out that Casper's economics would have worked better if they sent you a free mattress stuffed with $300 in cash. And there's a graphic here of Casper sleeping on a mattress with the breakdown of spend: $761 cost of goods sold, $480 in sales and marketing, and $470 in general and administrative work for each mattress. It equals a loss of $349. But of course, in typical Professor G fashion, the math is hyperbolic and incorrect. The 761 cogs plus 300 cash in the mattress that he's proposing would meet a loss of $1,061 per mattress, while Casper only lost $349 per mattress at the time of its IPO. But the point stands. Without a differentiated product, forced by their capital structures to grow, and faced with a wave of Shopify-armed competitors, Casper and Blue Apron had no choice but to spend their war chests to acquire customers. The razor industry is the exception that proves the rule. Razors have been really the only e-commerce category that has had multiple meaningful exits. First came Unilever's $1 billion acquisition of Dollar Shave Club, then P&G bought women's grooming company Billy for an undisclosed amount. Harry's nearly had the biggest exit of the three when Edgewell bought it for $1.37 billion. I'm biased because Pooja worked there, but the fact that the FTC opposed the deal on antitrust grounds is, if anything, Proof of Harry's success. There's a reason razors are the exception that proves the rule. You can count with your fingers the number of factories in the world that make high quality razor blades. p owns one, Edgewell owns one, Harry's owns Fine Technic, and there are like two or three more in the whole world. That's it. Because of limited and hard to obtain supply, first movers and raz- razors had a huge advantage. The unique value chain led to unique outcomes. In the new consumer, Dan Frommer made this chart of all the billion-dollar DTC exits. You look at it, it's one bar in 2016. Somehow, despite massive secular shifts and a lot of noise about rising e-commerce penetration, the DTC products themselves have produced only one $1 billion outcome, Dollar Shave Club, and two if you count Harry's. How can you harmonize those two seemingly contradictory ideas? It comes back to Happens, to what happens when all the rebels have access to the same weapons, and of course to Michael Porter Five Forces, Value Chains, and Direct-to-Consumer Back to the Porter Back in the 1980s an HBS professor named Michael Porter wrote two foundational strategy texts 1980s Competitive Strategy he introduced his Five Forces in the 1985 follow-up, Competitive Advantage he introduced the concept of the value chain. Both are as relevant today as they were then Porter's five forces describes an industry's competitive dynamics by looking at five forces, competitive rivalry, supplier power, buyer power, threat of substitution, and the threat of new entry. Oversimplified, the weaker each of the five forces is, the better your competitive position. Porter's value chain insight is that competitive advantage cannot be understood by looking at the firm as a whole. It stems from the many discrete activities a firm performs in designing, producing, marketing, delivering, and supporting its product. Breaking a company's value chain into its discrete components allows you to think about how the whole business fits together. What should the company build? What should it buy? Where should it differentiate? Where is it okay to use modularized or commoditized inputs? And how is each component linked to the others? Getting the combination right means sustained profits. Value chain analysis and the five forces explain the DTC landscape today and provide strategic frameworks to support the hard thing about easy things. First, let's look at the DTC value chain instead of discrete but linked activities companies perform to deliver products direct to their consumers. So you're looking at the value chain here, starts with R&D, then goes to manufacturing, then retail, that's your store, whether online or physical, logistics, getting the product to the customer, marketing, and then support. Back in 2013, Harry's integrated R&D, manufacturing, retail, and marketing by designing its own products, buying its own razor factory, selling directly to consumers from its own website, and building a referral engine from day one to drive tens of thousands of signups. It's able to create and capture profits because it has a differentiated value chain. Think about the value chain for a DTC company today though. Over the past decade, companies have sprung up to build software that allows anyone to do each of the unique things that Harry's did in house. There are so many high quality modularized inputs that one person with a computer can spin up a company and start shipping product in under a week so if you look at the modern DTC value chain, you have manufacturing, you have Alibaba, you have Anvil, you can go to a website and buy the product wholesale, or you can work with somebody to help you set up your supply chain uh, abroad. In retail, you have Stripe to take payments, you have Magento, Shopify, Big Commerce to help you set up a store. Marketing, you have the big, big two, Google and Facebook, and, and obviously Instagram is a part of Facebook. You even have marketer hire to, f- to find marketers to help you Set up your whole marketing playbook, buy your Google Ads, etc. In logistics, you have USPS, FedEx, UPS, ShipBob, Boxy, Quiet Logistics, and then in support, you have Returnly to help manage returns. You have Zendesk and you have Customer uh, to help with customer service. So one more time, just to be clear, you don't need to know anything other than how to use a few pieces of software to start a DTC brand. If I were a rebel starting a sunglasses company let's call it rebel sunglasses, and didn't want to go through Amazon, the empire, here's what I would do. I would find a product and order wholesale on Alibaba, set up a store on Shopify, drive customers to the site by buying ads on Facebook, Google, and Instagram, either myself or by hiring a growth marketing contractor on marketer hire, take payments via Stripe, drop ship directly from China with Boxy, or import with Flexport and ship with USPS, answer customer questions on Zendesk or customer, and return items via Returnly. Not all companies do it this way, of course. Many do their own R&D, set up their own supply chain, lease their own warehouses, and acquire customers in novel ways. Some roll their own tech stack to make sure that their tech meets the company's unique needs. But the fact that competitors can easily launch a DTC product means that any one brand's strategic, strategic position and ability to generate profits over the long term is weakened. To understand why, let's take the second tool out of Porter's toolkit, the five forces. So if you look at the five forces map, again, it's threat of new entry, buying power, supplier power, threat of substitution, and that all leads into competitive rivalry. So threat of new entry in DTC is very high. Anyone with a computer can spin up a decent competitor. Buyer power is medium. There's a lot of customers, so no one customer has much buying power, typically low average order value, but it's easy to compare competitors and they're trained to be price sensitive because they know to look for a cheaper deal somewhere else. So medium buyer power, supplier power, also medium. There's a lot of suppliers, but suppliers have many companies to choose from. If your company goes away, they have somebody else who can likely take it, take the, the capacity for a similar product. Threat of substitution is high. It depends on the product, but often it's easy and low cost to change to a substitute product. And we'll get into that in a little bit and look at what happens with my rebel sunglasses company. Overall, all these mean that the tools have created an environment where competitive rivalry is very high. Many compar- competitors, low barriers to entry, hard to discern quality differences, and low switching costs. By giving all of the rebels and incumbents access to the same weapons, Shopify and the rest of the DTC enabling software and services make the environment more competitive and weaken the ability of any individual to become profitable, particularly at meaningful scale and over a long enough timeframe to exit. Rebel Battle Royale. Let's go back to my hypothetical company, Rebel Sunglasses. Big things have been happening while well, you read the fa- past few paragraphs. I launched successfully, used that su- success to raise money, and then used that money to build a big team and acquire a lot of customers. I sold a lot of sunglasses and proved that customers do, in fact, like less expensive, well branded sunglasses delivered directly to their door. But as Biggie and Puff predicted, more money, more problems. Attracted by my success, more rebellious sunglasses launched using the same tools and supply chain that I did, and then most Rebel shades followed them with the same playbook. Each company stole my look, copied my website pixel for pixel, and even priced their products exactly the same as mine. To add insult to injury, Rebel Visors launched a line of visors that although not an exact rip off, do the same thing for customers, keep sun out of their eyes. All of a sudden, my current and potential customers have four choices, three sunglass companies and a visor company. We've all built the same value chain and we can all move just as quickly. I add new colors, they add new colors. I drop my prices, they drop their prices. I plug in a firm so customers can buy my sunglasses on credit at a 0% interest rate, they follow suit. This is entropy theory to a T. Shopify and the e-commerce infrastructure tools create chaos and that chaos will reign until a company comes in to wrangle it. This is what Shopify's shop app may try to do and certainly what Amazon does on a larger scale. For companies that don't want to rely on Amazon, there's only one place left to compete, paid acquisition. Rebel sunglasses, more rebellious sunglasses, and most rebel shades turn to Google to find new buyers competing for words like stylish sunglasses. We even compete with rebel visors for keywords like keep sun out of my eyes. AdWords gets more expensive for all of us. Then we all go to Facebook and bid on 18 to 35 year old American males who live near the beach and like white claws. Same thing happens. More competition means more expensive customer acquisition, but it's the only thing that we can do to grow. What's worse, because my competitors' marketing teams are run by inexperienced mom and pop founders, inexperience and optimism drive up the prices I need to pay. It's like playing blackjack at a table full of drunk amateurs. This is why 40% of venture dollars go to Google and Facebook. When every piece of the value chain is modularized and easily copied, companies are forced to compete by outspending each other to acquire customers. It's also why it's so much better to be the companies arming the rebels than to be the rebels themselves. Let's look at who wins and loses here. Shopify wins. There are now four paying customers instead of one, and we're all spending money to grow the market. Shopify takes a subscription fee and a cut of revenue. Google and Facebook win. We're all spending a ton of money on ads. UPS, FedEx, and USPS win. We're fighting to bring customers online and more customers shopping online instead of in-store means more shipping. All of the tools and services in the DTC value chain win. More competition means that each of the rebels needs more powerful weapons. Customers kind of win. They have more choice on the surface, but we're all offering the same thing. And because we're paying so much to acquire them, we don't have room for major discounts now that venture capital isn't bankrolling us as heavily. Sunglasses and visor companies, like my company, lose. By fighting against each other, we erode profit margins and enrich suppliers. There's a reason powerful countries arm rebels and a reason platforms do the same. It's a whole lot easier than getting in the trenches and fighting each fight yourself. Shopify and the other e-commerce tools have an added advantage. Unlike governments who need to use their own taxpayers' dollars to support foreign rebels, Shopify gets paid by every side. Shopify has good intentions, but it's more akin to a war profiteer than a rebel armor. The Sunglass Wars are a fictional example of a real battle that plays out every day. Unlike tech companies, which spend a lot of money up front and then make a lot of money by selling a differentiated product with low marginal costs, DTC brands upfront spend, proves out what works, and then sends pheromones out to new entrants. This isn't just a hypothetical. Away, the luggage company has raised $181 million, most recently at a $1.4 billion valuation. It was noteworthy not just because of its fantastic growth, but because it got profitable very early. That success, of course, attracted copycats like Manos. And in the post, I have two pictures one of Away's website and one of Monos's website. They're the same, except that Monos put a sale on everything. According to LinkedIn, Away has 481 employees. Manos has 24. Away needed to do the hard work to understand what customers want, develop product, educate consumers, figure out merchandising, and even work with the FAA to get suitcase batteries approved. Manos just needed to look at everything Away did, copy it, and buy some ads. Notably, Away is built on Spree Commerce and has a big team building and maintaining its website. Monos is built on Shopify, and I can't find any engineers on their LinkedIn. The websites look and feel the same. And it's not just Manos. July, Arlo Sky, Rome Luggage, and Paravel all do the same thing, as to countless cheaper knockoffs. After tens of millions of dollars and the hard work of 481 employees, the only unique weapons that Away has against Manos are brand and bank account. It's forced to compete with a copycat on the level playing field of keyword bidding and trade margin for growth. So what's a DTC brand to do? The arming of everyone means that massive scale is likely out of reach for any one DTC company. There won't be another Nike or Coca-Cola built direct to consumer, but there will be thousands or millions of small profitable DTC businesses built online in the coming years that will make their owners very comfortable and in some cases, rich. When all of the rebels are armed and empires like Amazon and Walmart have scaled that new entrants can't compete with, there are only a few places startups can win. The first question to ask is whether you wanna go venture backed or bootstrapped. Neither choice is right or wrong, but everything you do needs to align with that choice you make and your desired outcome. Bootstrapped, nine times out of 10, the answer should be bootstrapped. Don't raise VC, grow slowly, get profitable before all your credit cards are maxed out. If you're targeting small niches that you know how to reach without giving all of your margin to Google or Facebook, you can build a really nice business. If you're starting from scratch without an audience, focus on high margin, high average order value products that give you a lot of room for costs and let you achieve profitability without reaching a scaled customer base. If you have a built-in audience that trusts you, you can sell that audience anything that fits your brand and what fans expect from you. Kylie Cosmetics is the canonical example. Kylie Jenner leveraged her massive following to enter the crowded cosmetic space and become a billionaire, kinda, almost. Jojo Siwa sells everything from bows to dolls to juice boxes to her tween fans. Linear commerce is a response to overcrowded markets and expensive paid acquisition, and it's not just for celebrities. Most bootstrap DTC entrepreneurs should build an audience before they build their first product. Then there's the venture-backed route. If you want to raise venture capital, you need a really good reason besides to spend money acquiring as many customers as possible via Google and Facebook. You need to spend that money developing differentiated tech or IP, or a brand that captures a very particular audience that you can sell to an incumbent differentiated tech or IP. Eight Sleep is a sleep fitness company that has raised $70 million, which should set off alarm bells after reading the Casper section. But Eight Sleep sells more than a mattress. It sells a tech-enabled sleep system, including a mattress, automated heating and cooling, sleep tracking, and HRV monitoring. Eight Sleep spent its venture money building tech and has five patents that it has used to build a differentiated product to compete on features, not price. Casper and Eight Sleep's branded search results tell the story. If you search Casper mattress, the first thing that you see is a set of ads for competitors' products. Casper even has to pay for its own link to show up when someone searches for it. That's because when someone Googles Casper, what they really mean is a mattress in a box and competitors are willing to spend money to entice the customer to buy their mattress in a box. When you search for Eight Sleep mattress though, the page is clean. The organic link appears first on the page and there's not an ad to be seen. That's because Eight Sleep's product is differentiated enough that if I'm searching for it, it's because I want the pod sleep system and a Nectar or Purple Mattress won't do the trick. The other way is to build a brand that captures a particular audience. The other venture-backable approach is building up a specific audience in hopes of selling it to an incumbent that struggles to reach that audience. This is the approach that minted Dollar Shave Club, its $1 billion exit to Unilever, and on a smaller scale, the reason that P&G bought Bevel, which was aiming to be the P&G for people of color for $40 million. At this stage of the DTC game, Bevel's $40 million exit is more typical than Dollar Shave Club's now that each of the big CPG companies has made its splashy early play to to acquire the DTC skill set and are buying brands mainly for their audiences. In this approach, companies need to build a product, experience, community, messaging, and ethos that resonates strongly enough with certain customers that they aren't tempted to buy the knockoff version. If they need to decide between profitability and acquiring a target customer, these companies should choose acquisition, as long as they're able to retain and grow with these customers. Expect to see multiple 10 to low hundreds of millions of dollars acquisitions that help aging brands acquire Gen Z customers in the next few years. Ultimately, when everyone is armed with the same tools, differentiation, brand, and audience community, matter for DTC brands more than ever. We're all armed rebels now. This cycle holds across industries and verticals. Here's how it works. The innovator does something innovative. A brave few try to copy the innovator. Someone builds software to let everyone do that innovative thing. The innovative thing is no longer innovative. Then everybody does what the innovator did, making it hard to stand out and shifting the battleground to audience building and brand. Then with so many players in the market, curation becomes really important until the next innovator comes along and does something innovative and the cycle starts again. It's happening in newsletters where Substack gives writers an easy way to try to become the next Ben Thompson. It's happening in video games, where Epic Games is building the tools and literally giving them away for free to expand the total addressable market. It's happening in AI, where OpenAI is giving everyone GPT-3 to build on top of. Substack, Epic, OpenAI, and Shopify don't need to pick the winners. They benefit from their customers spending their own time and money to bring audience to their platforms. They sit back and happily take a cut. It also happened in video, when YouTube made it easy for anyone to become a creator. Then TikTok came along and became a curator, and it's capturing the massive value that comes with wrangling all of that entropy. The best way to make money in a war is to sell weapons to everyone. It creates its own demand. If the enemy has the best weapons, you'd better have them too. Once everyone is armed, the next opportunity to make money is to bring order to the chaos. I'm long Shopify, arming everyone while convincing each of them that they're the rebel is great for business. And I'm on the lookout for curation innovation that lets the best ETC companies go around Facebook and Google and rise to the top. That was a long one, but that's all for today. Uh, Looking forward to talking to you on Thursday. If you have any feedback, drop it in the comment section and I'll talk to you soon.